It's Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 down to 19. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught up in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers." Amen, and thank you very much, Jonathan, both for reading and for leading our service so far this evening. Good evening, everyone, and let me add my welcome to to Jonathan's. If we haven't met before, my name is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron, and it is great um, to have you here this evening on what what we've come to expect, a balmy uh, summer's evening in Aberdeen. And we're going to spend the next few minutes thinking about those verses together that have been read for us. Before we think about them, though, let's pray and ask for God's help. James writes, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Our God and Father, we ask very simply that as we reflect on your words together this evening, you please help us to draw near to you. And ask that as we do so, you would draw near to us, as you've promised to do. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, one of the fairly common charges that's leveled against the Christian faith, uh, particularly by critics, is that if there really was a God, uh, someone who had created the world and was king over it all, that he wouldn't really concern himself with the details of people's lives as Christians insist he does. So surely the God who spoke stars into existence doesn't really care what I do with my money, goes the logic. Or the God who crafted the Grand Canyon, well, he can't possibly care about what job I do or or whom I have a relationship with, can he? And that isn't just a question asked by critics, but by Christians too, perhaps not in such a sceptical way, but maybe in more of a disheartened way. 
We, we can think, can't we, that God is only concerned with grand gestures, with courageous acts of evangelism or, or bold acts of godliness, and doubtless he is concerned with those. But the reality is that for many of us, that isn't always what life looks like very often. Normal life often looks, well, more normal. And so we might not articulate it quite like this, but it is possible for us to behave as though God isn't, he isn't really all that concerned. He isn't all that interested with around 95% of my life. He's only concerned with the bold and the courageous. And uh, to both of those approaches, to the, the skeptical view and to what we'll call maybe the disheartened view of God's interest in my life, Well, the Bible would say a resounding no. Because you see, the God who made us, who made the world we live in, he is concerned with the details. He designed us, his creatures, to flourish and to flourish even in the nitty-gritty of daily life. And if you don't believe me, Well, then Proverbs chapter 6 is case in point. As Jonathan has mentioned, we're a few weeks into this evening series in the book of Proverbs, which has been helping us to think about how we might live wisely, how we might navigate well through life lived in the world God made. And as we began the series, we saw that that kind of wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, with, with viewing the God who made us rightly. And the rest of Proverbs has been fleshing out what that looks like in the day-to-day, how to live wisely. And you might have noticed, as we read Proverbs 6 a few minutes ago, that that really does include nitty-gritty stuff. We're going to be thinking this evening about making rash financial commitments in verses 1 to 5. We're going to think about work and about how and why we work in verses 6 to 11. And we're going to think about living peaceably among other people in verses 12 to 19. It's all very practical, all very relevant, all very nuts and bolts stuff. And yet, coming as it does from the one who made the world we are living in, who made us, well, it's all very much worth us paying attention to. So let's uh, turn to the first of those themes in our passage this evening. Pursue wisdom by avoiding financial ensnarement, verses 1 to 5. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard of a company called Amigo Loans before. I'm not asking that as a trap for anyone. You don't need to worry about the answer you give. If you have heard of them, it's quite possible you heard about them during an advertising slot, during a daytime TV program. That was a key feature of their advertising agenda. And Amigo specialized in what are called guarantor loans. What is a guarantor loan? Well, it's, it's basically a loan in, in which a borrower is allowed to borrow money from somebody only if they have someone else guarantee that if they, the borrower, can't pay back the debt, that that other guarantor will pay it back instead. And for Amigo loans, that business model was a very fruitful one. Business was booming, in fact. The company was valued at around £1.3 billion, somewhere between 2015 and 2018. But by January this year, Amigo Loans was declared bankrupt. 
There's a certain irony about that, I guess. How did things go so badly, so quickly for Amigo? Well, in the post-mortem of the company, it seemed that Amigo didn't have a very robust way of checking whether borrowers or, or, or guarantors actually had funds to repay. They lent lots of money to people without making sure they would ever get it back. Now, um, you don't need to be an economics expert to appreciate that that might not be the most fruitful of business practices. And in fact, thousands of years before Amigo loans had even been conceived of, Solomon was warning of exactly that kind of danger. We see that in Proverbs chapter 6. Only the counsel we read in Proverbs 6 isn't necessarily given to, to the loan provider, to the ancient equivalent of Amigo loans, but to the guarantor. The person who's been asked to guarantee a loan on someone else's behalf. Just notice that with me. Solomon sets the situation out for his son to consider in verse 1. My son, he says, if you've put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. The picture being painted is of someone who's decided to take out a loan. And, and the lender, much like Amigo Loans, wants to make sure he gets his money back at the end of the term. And so he asks the borrower to find a guarantor, someone who will make good on the debt if the borrower defaults. And so the borrower tries to find that guarantor. What does that have to do with you, you might ask? Well, Solomon has his son imagine that his doorbell then rings. And it's a neighbor at the door who says they need a bit of a favor. Listen, I really need to borrow a bit of money, but I don't want to, 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 to bother you for it. I can't ask that of you. Instead, would you mind just signing this, this piece of paper for me? It's, it's a guarantee, and it'll mean that I can borrow the money from someone else. You won't have to worry yourself about it at all. At which point, Solomon is screaming, don't do it. It's a trap. And uh, trap is the kind of language he uses, isn't it? Verse 3. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, you're on dangerous ground, says Solomon. So dangerous, in fact, that if this warning reaches you too late, if you've already signed the document, verse 4, get out of it as quickly as you can. Don't sleep until you get out of it. Beware entering into financial commitments without thinking through all of the consequences. Now, I'm aware that that might all sound like quite brutal counsel. Because all the guarantor was actually trying to do, on the face of it at least, was to help someone out who was clearly in need of help. So why does Solomon sound so harsh? Well, it is just worth saying that elsewhere in Proverbs, Solomon is very strong about how important it is to be kind to people who are in need. So what he can't be saying is that it's every man for himself when it comes to money. Proverbs 6 is a very particular warning. It's a warning about entering into financial commitments without thinking through the potential consequences, entering into a partnership that ties all of your possessions to somebody else's. Now, be generous with your money, by all means. He'll say that explicitly later in Proverbs. Be generous with your money, but not foolish with it. Now, there is, you might see, a very narrow line of application for us this evening about not acting as a guarantor for someone when you don't know what debt you're guaranteeing, and that 
I, I think application does stand. But there is also a wider principle that's worth us clocking to, I think. You see, the Bible's teaching about money is, is quite clear when it comes to the dangers of greed, isn't it? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, we read elsewhere. So be careful not to be too wedded to it, is the big idea. But even with that side of things quite clear in our minds, it is possible for us to think that as long as we aren't greedy when it comes to money, that it doesn't really matter what we do with it. God won't really mind. But you see, that isn't quite right, is it? We are, of course, right to guard against greed. But even as we do that, well, the principle of, of, of stewardship, of managing that which God has given to us, is an absolutely biblical one. Again, be generous with, with what God has given to you, seeing that it isn't actually yours anyway. It was a gift from him. But because it was a gift from him, don't be foolish with it or haphazard with it. Pursue wisdom, says Solomon, by avoiding financial ensnarement. It's ancient counsel, but it sounds like it could have been written yesterday. And yet money isn't the only issue which Solomon is keen to address. He turns next to work. And so, so will we. Verses 6 to 11, pursue wisdom by working diligently. Now, um, a, f- a few years ago, um, there was a Disney movie released to rave reviews called Inside Out. Some of you might have seen it. For full disclosure, it's probably not one of my favorites in the Disney Pixar back catalog, but it was probably one of the more original animated movies released in recent years. The film follows a young girl called Riley as uh, her parents make a big move from one part of the United States to another part. But rather than than being a sort of standard coming-of-age story following Riley through the ups and downs of the move, the film's actually set inside Riley's mind. And it follows the interactions of five of Riley's emotions, each of whom are personified. They appear as, as independent characters. We meet one after the other, joy and sadness and anger and fear and disgust and see how they all interact with one another. Now, um, one surefire way to destroy the magic of a kid's film is to have one grown-up try to explain it to a room full of other grown-ups. Uh, it is actually much better than I've just made it sound. But it might not have been as original as I made it sound. Because, you see, the book of Proverbs did the whole personification thing literally thousands of years before Pixar had raised a pen to try. In Proverbs chapter 6, we meet a fairly key character in the whole book of Proverbs called the sluggard. Now, we don't use the word sluggard or or, or sluggardly very often now, maybe because it's a bit of a tongue twister, but it means laziness or idleness. And in, in Proverbs, sluggardliness is personified. He appears as a person. Chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now, as you read on through the book of Proverbs and you meet the sluggard in in various different places, 
he might actually come across as a bit of a cartoon character himself. He's so ridiculously lazy that at points, I think he's meant to raise a smile. We read later in Proverbs that, that he, he, he puts his hand into a dish to get food, but is so lazy that he doesn't bring his hand back to his mouth. That is meant, I think, to raise a smile. And yet the warning being held out to us by the sluggard is anything but funny. Verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Now for many, if not most of us, I guess, work is a necessity, at least at some point in our lives. Some of us might love our jobs, some of us might not. But if we are, we have been in paid employment of any kind. At least part of the motivation for doing that job is usually to put food on the table and to pay bills. And that might sound like quite an unspiritual motivation, mightn't it? Solomon's showing us that it really isn't. That it's part of how God designed his world to work. Don't work, says Solomon, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Being idle when it comes to work will ultimately result in material need. That's the idea, I think. Now, it is just worth saying at this point that that isn't necessarily an absolute thing. I guess lots of us will be able to think of folks who, who perhaps have been born into money and who never needed to work or perhaps worked hard for part of their life to save up enough and don't need to, to work in paid employment anymore. And not only that, I am conscious that in any church family, there'll be some folks who aren't working and would love to be, or who are at various stages of their employment life. The point of this is not to say that if you're struggling to find paid employment, you're doing anything wrong. That's not the point. Solomon often deals in general principles of the way that God made the world to work on the whole. And the point he's making is if you want to eat and you want to subsist, well, generally, the way we're able to do that is by working, by earning the means to buy food or clothes, to put a roof over your head. Pursue wisdom by working, says Solomon. But that isn't all he says, is it? See, he isn't just concerned that we work. Solomon's concerned with how we work. Chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now, ants aren't usually held out as being especially virtuous creatures. For most of us, I guess, they're generally a bit of a nuisance. But rather than reaching for the ant powder to try and get rid of them, Solomon would have us copy them. And would particularly have us copy their work ethic. Do you see that? Ants don't need a boss breathing down their neck to make them work. They just crack on and do it. And so too, says Solomon, should we, if we're to flourish, should work diligently, not because someone is pressuring you to, 
Now, again, the idea here is not that we don't rest. The Bible has lots to say about rest, too. The idea is that when we are working, if we really are to flourish, we're to do so diligently. Now, in case you think that that's all a bit niche, the New Testament does highlight this principle, possibly makes the idea or makes the point even more strongly than Solomon does. In his letter to to the Colossians, Paul tells the church in Colossae to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So Paul's saying that for someone who follows Jesus, part of following Jesus involves being a good employee. You see that? It's the same kind of territory we're in in Proverbs. Pursue wisdom by working diligently. Now, where might this idea bite for us this evening? Because you see the danger, or at least one danger with the sluggard, is that as we come across him in the book of Proverbs, that he's so brazenly lazy, we might brush all of this off as, as only applying to especially lazy people, to people who, who really won't drag themselves out of bed in the morning. We mustn't fall into that trap. Think instead of the person who has an hour for lunch, but takes an hour and a half most days, because goes their reasoning, I'll be paid the same either way. Why bother starting back when I'm meant to? My boss doesn't really keep much of an eye on timings anyway. No one's going to notice. Or to the person who, who works their allotted hours, but, but sort of goes through the motions when they're in the office. Because I've been doing this job for long enough that I don't need to give it 100% to get by. Why bother grafting? The sluggard should be a warning, I think. If you want to live a wise life, to navigate through life lived in the world God made, then work, says Solomon, and do so diligently. Now, um, there has been a ramping up so far in the seriousness with which Solomon is addressing each of these issues. And uh, that point is made by the change in whom Solomon addresses in each of these units. I wonder if you noticed that development as we read through the passage a few minutes ago. Solomon starts, verse 1, by addressing my son. So he's still a father teaching his son how to be wise, how to flourish. By verse 6, though, he addresses the sluggard in the second person. Go to the ant, O sluggard, he says, which is less of a fatherly arm around the shoulder and more of a teacher setting a student a task. And then as we move into the third unit, things get sharper still. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. Things move from second person to third person. He's describing someone from afar. And I do think we're meant to take from that that whilst our first two lessons have been very serious indeed, we really do need to pay attention to this third one. Let's do that under our third and final heading this evening. Pursue wisdom by living harmoniously. Verses 12 to 19. Now, we're introduced to another character who Uh, Let's be honest, he doesn't exactly have a glowing CV. Uh, He is, verse 12, a worthless person and a wicked man. We're told what Solomon's problem with this guy is pretty quickly. Verse 12, he has crooked speech. In verse 13, his eyes say one thing and his feet say something else and his finger says something different yet again. He is, verse 14, devising evil. 
And I'm pretty sure from that pencil sketch we're given, we can appreciate why Solomon might not be a fan of this individual from his lack of integrity or his his deviousness. But before we rush in and treat him as a pantomime baddie, the sting in the tail, I think, comes in the second half of verse 14. See, the individual in question's behavior isn't just bad in itself, though it clearly is. It's bad because, verse 14, he is continually sowing discord. Or verse 19, as we reach the punchline, he sows discord among brothers. In all of his devious behavior, he's sowing up disharmony among people. And that should make us hammer the brakes on a bit, shouldn't it? Because it locates this guy, not in the realm of the pantomime paddy, but right in the day-to-day business of of normal life. The person in an office or workplace who says one thing to your face and something else to someone else, who seems to be the fount of, of all office gossip and who loves nothing more than stirring up rivalries between colleagues. Perhaps we might even think of the person in a local church who loves nothing more than a good gossip, even if they aren't all that sure that the stories they're spreading are true, might even share those stories disguised as prayer requests and enjoys the fallout. Now, you might think it's a bit of an overreach to say this might apply in a local church, but just look again at how the passage finishes. Verse 19. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, that might be talking about genetic brothers in the first instance. We can't be sure, but it does at least show that the wicked man of verse 12 doesn't just inhabit corporate boardrooms, but families, perhaps even church families. Now, I should say that I'm not taking that line of application because this is an issue I've noticed much of within Hebron during the time I've been here. It's possible that it's happening and I'm not aware of it. Of course, my experience has been of a great deal of unity and love and care shown between uh, this church family, but it is nonetheless so worth us taking time to reflect on. Am I an agent of harmony and of peace in my workplace or my family or my church family Or am I an agent of discord? And uh, the reason I think that's particularly important is uh, that Proverbs isn't warning us about the consequences of sowing discord. Solomon could do that, couldn't he? He could say something like, uh, to be like the wicked man, well, it damages the reputation of God's people when, when God's people argue amongst one another. And ultimately, that damages the reputation of the God we represent, so you'd jolly well better not do it. But that isn't the reason Proverbs gives us for avoiding this kind of conflict, at least not here. Notice the reason we're given instead. Verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. What he's describing with those six things or seven things, I think, 
is this individual who is an agent of discord. And just notice, notice what he says about that person. By sowing discord, stoking arguments and fights, pursuing evil, you're not just setting yourself against other people, bad though that is. You're setting yourself against the creator God. Verse 16, he says, God hates this kind of behavior. It's an abomination to him. It's very strong language, isn't it? And it does raise the stakes. And of course, there can be good reasons to disagree with someone. Uh, We even saw something of that in Philippians this morning. People were preaching in Paul's day motivated by rivalry. And Paul wasn't afraid to call them out for that. So what we aren't saying is is that any kind of disharmony is bad. But most disharmony doesn't look much like that, does it? Think of the sniping word behind someone else's back. Or the quiet maneuvering of of a, a, a social group to try and oust someone from that friendship circle. It might all look quite small fry, quite humdrum. Solomon says it's anything but. God hates it. And would we not think twice before tearing down someone? Before passing on a juicy piece of gossip? Before stirring up a fight between two different parties? If we knew that we were setting ourselves against the creator God? I know I would. Now, what are we to do? if we see shadows of that in ourselves as we reflect on our own hearts and the flashes of of, of divisiveness, of discord that may lurk deep down, may even have shown itself in our own conduct, what do we do? Well, in the first instance, I think it, it should cause us grief. Partly for the harm we've caused to those people involved, of course, And partly for the fact that we've set ourselves against the creator God. That is a serious, serious thing, isn't it? And that should cause us grief, the right kind of grief. But it needn't cause us despair. As we've already sung this evening, in the good news of Jesus, there is hope for all of us. I quoted James in my opening prayer this evening, and we actually studied as a church family the book of James last semester, and we saw a similar theme being picked up, that of of self-centeredness, particularly within a local church. And in exactly that context, speaking to people who had been self-centered, who had been squabbling and fighting, James said that as we weep over our sin, as we submit ourselves to God, God gives more grace. That's the phrase James uses. He gives more grace. Isn't that a wonderful promise? The God whom we have offended, against whom we may well have pitted ourselves, says that if we would only ask him, he gives more grace. Now perhaps you're here this evening and wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian if that is you, please just let me acknowledge this. This all might have sounded a bit niche, a bit kind of detailed for your liking, as though it's been a, a sort of seminar to help us get our act together as human beings. But I do hope that it's at least intrigued you. 
that the God of the Bible would call us to get our house in order when it comes to disharmony. That that isn't what God would have for his people. Even if it's something you might have seen in churches you've witnessed before. And not only that, that the God who made this world, who did speak the Grand Canyon into existence, well, he really does care about the details of our lives. And says that when we listen to him, and when we, 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 we do what he tells us about those details, then we will flourish. That is his end goal. He is not intending to keep things from us, but to enable us to flourish, to live as we were made to live. So if you aren't a Christian this evening, rather than brushing him off, perhaps because of what you might have witnessed in his people, well, can I encourage you to find out more about him? To listen to, to what he says about who he is, that he is worthy of our fear, as we've thought already this evening. Find out what he says about who you are, about how he would have you live in his world. It is the most important voice you will ever hear. And his voice demands a response. And if you are a, a Christian, this whole passage has a sharp application to each of us too. Perhaps you've seen something of yourself in what Proverbs has described this evening. In these three snapshots, they've been very searching, haven't they? In different ways. How easy it is for us to be flippant with how we might approach something like finance. How easy it can be to do just enough to get by in our workplaces. How easy it can be to scheme, either in order to get our way or just because we fancy the drama. God says, do not be fools. Because by doing that, not only are you not living as God made you to live, you're actually setting yourself against him. And that is a serious, serious thing to do. But it is just worth saying that these warnings and proverbs aren't meant to leave us despairing. They are meant to be just that. They are warnings. They are intended to call us back. Because you see, the good news is that if you have trusted in Jesus, in his death on the cross, that those words in James are true of you. He gives more grace. So ask him for that grace this evening. And ask him for the help to fear him, to walk wisely before him in the big and in the small stuff of life. And I say ask him because we can't do that ourselves. We need the help of his Holy Spirit to be more and more like him. And so as we close, I'm going to ask him to be at work at growing us as a people here, growing us as a church family, to live wisely and walk humbly before him. Let's pray to that end now. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the truths of Proverbs. We thank you for how true to life they really are. Father, we ask that as we reflect this evening on areas or situations in our lives where we may well have been foolish, perhaps in relation to money or to work or to relationships, we pray, Lord, you would please enable us to weep and to mourn over that. 
And we thank you for what we've just considered, your extraordinary love for your people, that despite our failure to love you or to treat each other as we ought, that you give more grace. We ask this evening, Lord, that you would please help us to take hold of that grace with both hands as we're on our knees before you. And by your Holy Spirit, would you please help each of us to live wisely in your world, to do so both for our flourishing and for your glory. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.